Good morning, and welcome to Winnetka Bible Church. My name is Harry Shields. I have the privilege of serving here at Winnetka Bible Church as the interim pastor. And we are so delighted that you could come and worship with us this morning. It's our prayer that God will speak to you through the songs that we've sung, through the ministry of the Word, so that you will represent Christ fully in the life that He gives to you. So again, thank you for joining us this morning. I don't know if you've ever heard the story that John Maxwell tells. It's a story about two cows that happen to be out in a pasture field. They are eating, they are looking around, and all of a sudden, a milk truck drives by. On the side of that milk truck, there's a picture of a cow, and under the cow are these words, pasteurized, homogenized, sanitized, vitamin D added. As the truck went by, one of the cows looks at the other one and says, when you read something like that, it almost makes you feel inadequate. Well, I don't know about cows, whether they feel inadequate or not, but I know a lot of people who sense inadequacy in their lives. They feel unprepared. They feel inadequate whenever it comes to being a parent. They feel inadequate in the jobs that have been assigned to them. They feel inadequate in many of the relationships that they have. And a lot of times, our inadequacy, our unpreparedness, uh, leads us to despair in our lives. I think that one of the areas that believers happen to experience inadequacy more than any other area of life is when it comes to doing the will of God. Now, you might protest at first. You might say, if God wants me to do something, I'll do it. But as far as the average Christian is concerned, that's just not the case. Uh, take, for example, whenever it comes to that great commandment that Jesus has given to us, and He tells us to go into all of the world, including the world of our relationships, our families, uh, our neighborhoods. And He tells us to go everywhere and to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we stop to think about that, some of us back off a little bit. And we say, I, I can't do that. I don't know what I would say. I'm not equipped like other people to share the gospel. Or we ask questions like, what will I do if someone asks a question that I cannot answer? What that really means is that we feel inadequacy when it comes to the command of taking the gospel everywhere. Or uh, take the command where we are told to love one another. Jesus says, even as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. And yet, in the process, uh, we will respond and say, well, I'll do that except for the fact there are some people in the church, some people in the community that aren't like me. They think differently from me. They are at a different socioeconomic uh, uh, class in, in life. And, and quite frankly, their personality and my personality, we just don't mesh. So when it comes to the command to love one another, we are resistant and we feel inadequate. Or what about a command? We looked at this months ago when I first came to Winnetka Bible Church, that command to uh, uh, lay up treasures in heaven. That's a, a biblical phrase where it says we are to take all of the material things that we have and we are to consider uh, giving those things, investing those things in the kingdom of God, God's purposes for the world. 
Now, we sometimes want to give, and we can be very generous, but however, whenever we enter difficult times, like the days in which we are living, we say to ourselves, I better save a little bit more. I better put a little bit more aside, because we never know when we're going to run out of money, we're going to run out of material goods. So God can give the command, but we feel inadequate in fulfilling some of those commands, like being generous. So it comes back to this question, what do we do with the commands of God? Uh, maybe another way of asking that question is, what do we need to know whenever it comes to the commands that God gives to His people? I have good news for you this morning. And the good news is that the Word of God comes to the people of God so that we might know how to address the inadequacies that we feel when we hear from God. And that word from God comes to us in the Old Testament book of Exodus. If you have not already done so, would you take your Bibles and would you turn again to Exodus? Exodus chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 28, and we're going to go all the way through Exodus chapter 7. That's Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, uh, 28, and we're going to go all the way through to Exodus chapter 7 and verse 25. Now, it's important for us to understand this passage in terms of its context. And keep in mind, we're talking about how do we deal with these inadequacies over the commands, over the will of God as it's presented to us. How do we handle that? Now, what we see happening is that we meet a man at the end of Exodus chapter 6, the man Moses, who is feeling very inadequate. In fact, it's been going on for a long period of time. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 3, we encounter Moses in the land of Midian. In fact, he grew up as a Hebrew in the land of Egypt. Then he was taken in by Pharaoh's daughter, and he is raised in the royal household. And then he sees his own people, the Hebrews. They are being oppressed, and uh, he goes and he slays an Egyptian taskmaster. All of that he realizes that uh, people are now turning against him, and so he flees. He flees to the land of Midian, and he's there for almost 40 years. And in that wilderness experience, while serving as a shepherd, God comes and speaks to Moses. In a word, what he's saying to them, saying to him is, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and you are going to be my spokesman so that together we might bring the people of Israel out of the land of of Egypt. And Moses, almost from the get-go, begins to say, not me, you, you have the wrong person. And God, not only in that burning bush experience where the bush never burns up, but in other experiences, God gives signs to Moses on several different occasions. And Moses is constantly pushing back, not me, I, I'm not the one who is capable of doing any of this. I'm sure many of us listening to this message this morning can understand. We feel the same way. God sometimes seems to ask us impossible things. So what are we supposed to do? Again, I would come back, and a better question is, what is it that we need to know? In Exodus chapter 6, one of the things that Moses hears from God over and over again, at least four times, is this statement, I am the Lord. He's basically saying, I am the majestic one, I am the sovereign one, I am the deliverer. Moses, you need to understand that. Now, something interesting happens near the middle of Exodus chapter 6. 
And that's the fact that there is this genealogy that just seems to drop out of the sky and into the middle of Exodus chapter 6. Why do we have this genealogy? Starts with the firstborn and the secondborn of the sons of Jacob, and then it comes to the family of Levi. And we have this long list of the children of Levi. You may remember that the family of Levi became the priestly clan in the family of Israel. And it's interesting to me that, that Moses and Aaron are part of that priestly clan. Later on, as we make further progress in Exodus, we're going to discover that God says to the people of Israel as a whole, you will be a kingdom of priests. But why do we have this genealogy? For a couple of different reasons, to show that Moses and Aaron, that they are priests, but even more so to show that Moses, even though he's been gone from the scene, he's been gone from the people of Israel for a long period of time, he is part of this nation. And so he rightly has a role to lead the people, ultimately to bring them out of Egypt. And then we come to verse 28 of Exodus chapter 6. I want you to listen again to what God says. On that day, when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt... The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. There's that phrase again, very important phrase. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? When he says, I am of uh, uncircumcised lips, some translations render that as, uh, I am a person with a speech impediment. Could be that. Or it could be something else. It could be the kind of thing, keep in mind, that Moses was uh, born into a Hebrew family. It was probably in that family for three or four years before he is turned over to the daughter of Pharaoh. And during that time, he knows a little bit of Hebrew. Then he begins to learn some of the Egyptian dialects. Then he has to flee Egypt. He goes all the way to Midian, and he learns yet another dialect, maybe a couple along the way. And he's there for 40 years. Now, Moses is coming back. He's going back to Egypt. He could be a person with a little bit of an accent. So he's concerned that maybe people will look at him. They will, they will chuckle at his accent. Is he really the kind of person that is capable of speaking to the Pharaoh? Moses knows that, and he feels inadequate in doing what God is going to ask him to do. <clears throat> but I want you to notice what happens following verse 30 of chapter 6. God begins to speak. Now notice specifically the verbs that Moses records with respect to what God is saying. We see the first one in verse 7, where God says, I have made you. He's going to say, I have made you like God, and I have made your brother like a, a prophet. I have made you. Or drop down to verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you. Drop down to verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Drop down to yet another verbal phrase in verse 4. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out. Or drop down to verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, I want you to notice what happens next. Remember, 
Verse 30, Moses says, I can't do this. Uh, I'm not the kind of person. I am of uncircumcised lips. And then God begins to speak. God begins to say, this is what I am going to do. Now, you'll want to make note what happens in verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, here's what strikes me in these first six verses. How is it that a man says, I can't do this, I'm incapable, I am inadequate, and then a few verses later, we are told that they are ready to go. They're going to do exactly what God tells them to do. What's the difference? How does the change come about? It's because all of a sudden, Moses and Aaron are realizing who God is. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. Uh, He is the majestic one. He is the supreme one. And if God is everything that He says He is, then He's basically saying, you can do whatever I am asking you to do. What I care about more than anything else this morning is that you will hear a principle and you will take that principle with you into the rest of your life. My prayer for you is that you will hear the primary thing that God is saying in this passage, and it will transform you so that whatever God asks of you, whatever God asks of me, we will be ready to do it because we know who God is. So here's the principle. The principle is we can do whatever God asks of us because God is the one who will bring it to pass. Let me say that again. We can do whatever God asks of us, whatever He commands of us, because God is so supreme, God is so sovereign, that He will bring that to pass, that very thing that He's asking us to do. Now, as soon as you hear that principle, and you're going to hear it a couple times again before this sermon is over, uh, I want us to raise some questions with respect to that principle. Here's the first question. Who is this principle for? Okay? Uh, Who is this principle for? Then we're going to try to answer the question, why should we believe that God Himself can bring these commands that He presents to us? Why should we believe that He can bring them to pass? That's the second question. Third question is, if that's true that God will bring these things to pass, then how should we respond in light of who God is? All right? So we have a who question. Who's this principle four, and then we have a why question. Why should we believe that God is capable of doing this? And then the third thing is, how should we respond to this God if He's supreme and He will accomplish everything that He says He's going to do? All right, back to the first question. Who is this principle before? And the principle is, we can do whatever God asks us to do because God Himself will bring it to pass. Now, uh, who's that principle for? I guess we could say for everyone, but that's not exactly true. First of all, we know that that principle is for the people of Israel. You see, when Moses wrote the book of Exodus, in fact, when he wrote the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, uh, he was writing this for a second generation of Israelites. Those Israelites who had come out of the land of Egypt, they were ready to enter into the promised land, and they'd been wondering, uh, their parents had been wondering for about 40 years, and they needed to know who God is. 
And so this principle was for them. So Moses writes these words after he himself had grown in his faith so that his fellow Israelites would understand who God is. So the principle's for them. But consider another passage of Scripture, what I think is one of the most important, significant passages in all of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and this is what it says. All Scripture, or every Scripture, has been inspired by God and is profitable. Some translations say useful. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God might be equipped for every good work. Here's another way of saying that. All Scripture is for you and for me. All Scripture is for every Christ follower. All Scripture is for everyone who says, I want to obey God, I want to be a part of His kingdom program. So the Scripture is for everyone. Uh, Everyone who follows God and wants to honor God with their lives. Imagine this scene. It's a Warm, sunny day, there are children playing in the backyard. All the neighbor children have come over. In fact, your children have invited another child that happens to be the child of your best friend. It's getting late in the afternoon. The mother is fixing dinner, and um, just a little bit before the food is ready to be served, she walks out on the back porch, and she says, Okay, kids, dinner is ready. Come in. It will be ready in about five minutes. Uh, Wash your hands. My question to you, is that command for everyone? No, it's really for those three children, her two children and the visiting child of uh, her best friend. It's for them, and they understand that, and so they are the ones who who run inside. Some commands uh, might be for everyone, but many of the commands are for specific people. That's true of the commands of God, the will of God. They are for His people in every single generation. So we can do whatever God asks us to do because God himself will bring those commands to pass. And who's this principle for? For those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to our second question. The second question is, why is it that we should believe that God will actually fulfill the commands that he has given to us? Well, it's because of a couple things that we see in this long passage that we have this morning. Uh, One has to do with a sign. The other one has to do with what we sometimes refer to as the first plague upon uh, the Egyptian people. And what we see happening here is that God is revealing something about Himself. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 7, we are introduced to what we might call the sign of the staff. Notice again what is taking place. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Two or three times in this section, verses 8 through 13, uh, there is a reference made to a serpent. And so what happens is uh, Moses and Aaron, they come before the Pharaoh, And uh, basically what happens is Aaron takes the staff and he throws it down on the ground and it turns into a serpent. Some translations or uh, some repetitions of the story will refer to it as a snake. The staff becomes a a snake. But specifically, it's a reference to a serpent. And the word that is used here is a reference to 
a rather large, sometimes maybe even a primordial uh, type of, of servant, one that might come on the scene to bring about chaos. And so this is a majestic scene. It's not just a staff uh, being thrown down. It becomes a, a black snake or a, a long garter snake or a python or any of those kinds of things. Uh, this is something some commentators would say it, it might even be the size of a crocodile. And then we are told that the uh, magicians, uh, those that uh, Pharaoh happens to call, uh, they begin to use the text as they use their magic or their trickery. It was usually something that was related to one of the religions that existed in the land of Egypt. And so they're doing something not just that is a bit of a sleight of hand, but even more so, it, it's probably the, the kind of thing in which they are using demonic forces to change what's happening. And you may remember how the story uh, ends. We are told that uh, this uh, serpent that... Uh, comes out of the staff of Aaron, begins to consume all of the other uh, serpents that are around there. Now, why do we need to hear that story? Is it just something dramatic to get our attention and say, boy, that's really interesting? No, it's much more than that. What Moses seems to be doing in retelling this story for us is to say that this God is supreme over every spiritual force, every demonic force that might exist in the world. God is supreme over everything, and he starts to prove it through this first sign. But there's a, a second sign, what we refer to as the first plague. Uh, here's what we learn is going to happen next, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people, of, uh, people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. So here's the staff again. Now picture the scene, what's taking place. Apparently, on a very regular basis, the Pharaoh would walk from his palace and he would head to the Nile, Nile River. Uh, the Nile was viewed by the Egyptians uh, almost as if it was a god. Some would even think it was a god. And so Pharaoh and his family sometimes would go there. Uh, they would do it to, to engage in an act of worship. But it's probably even more than that. Pharaoh, on a very regular basis, he would walk to the Nile and he would probably disrobe so that he could bathe in the waters of the Nile. Again, assuming that this might even be cleansing or healing for him or for his family. And now all of a sudden, Moses and Aaron come on the scene, and they're basically saying to Pharaoh, listen, uh, God, the Lord, is speaking to you, saying, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. We'll come back and talk about that word serve in just a moment. And uh, the Pharaoh is, is somewhat indifferent, and so what takes place is that Aaron takes the staff in his hand and he touches the water. And we are told that the water turns into blood. Now, people sometimes try to speculate, is this really possible? How, how could this take place? And there are a lot of different theories. Some would say that as the Nile was flowing uh, further upstream, there would be debris, especially in the spring, that would begin to be washed into to the waters. And so by the time it gets to where Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron are standing, that, that water has become polluted and it looks red. In fact, even the word uh, translated here, blood, is the word that uh, is used in Hebrew to refer to, to red. 
But I must tell you that I am more convinced that it turned into actual blood. And here's why I say that. Because instantaneously, at the time when Aaron touches the water, it turns instantaneously, not because of something that happened upstream. And all of a sudden, things that are within the stream, not like previous times when the water may have been polluted a little bit, but the fish in the water, they begin to die. So there is a miracle that is taking place here, and we are told at the end of this story in verse 23 that Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. Now, why do we have this second scene? And there are going to be others along the way. Why do we need to know that? We need to know that because God is saying to this second generation of Israelites through Moses, not only do I have supremacy and power over the spiritual realm, but I have supremacy and power over the natural realm as well. God is supreme over everything. So why should we believe that God is going to bring to pass the very things He invites us to join Him in doing? Why should we believe that? Because God is sovereign in every single way. And what He says He's going to do, He resources His people along the way. One of the things that we are told in the Scripture is that God resources His people. For example, Jesus in John's Gospel promised that after He went away, He would send the Spirit to live with us. And He said, not only will the Spirit be with you, but the Spirit will be in you. Every single thing that God asks of us, He will empower us. He will live within us through the ministry of His Holy Spirit. So why should we believe that God will bring these things to pass? Because God is supreme over absolutely everything, and He is involved in the life of the believer. So we can do whatever God's asking us to do, even in our adequacy, because God will bring it to pass. Who is this principle for? It's for everyone who says we are a follower of God. We are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we believe it? Because God demonstrates that He is powerful in history and time over absolutely everything. That brings to that third question. And the third question is, so how then should we respond? If we know that God is this powerful, this sovereign, then what is it that we should do? There are two or three things that I see in this passage. Here's the first thing. You and I, if God is so supreme, if God's going to bring these things to pass, then we ought to embrace the identity that God has given to us. Would you go back and take a look at chapter 7? Verses 1 and 2. God says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. God says, This is the identity that I am giving to you, Moses. This is the identity that I am giving to Aaron. And then we drop down to verse 6, and we are told that Moses and Aaron obeyed whatever it was that God wanted them to do. Uh, Identity is a big deal. In fact, Moses and Aaron must have embraced that identity because we see them doing this over and over and over again. They begin to obey what it is that God has for them. And so we begin to see and we begin to understand that God has an identity for us. But that wasn't true just for Moses and Aaron. 
If you were to fast forward to First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you would encounter these words. And by the way, as a staff here at Winnetka Bible Church, uh, we are memorizing these two verses. We want to remember who we are. And here's what Peter said to these early Christians. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter says, uh, for once you did not receive mercy, but now he has given you mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's the identity of every single believer. I read a story not long ago of a man by the name of Jay Spite. Jay Spite uh, lives in the state of New Jersey, grew up in New Jersey. Uh, He lived in the same apartment almost all of his life does not own a car, and and Jay would walk to work almost every single day. Kind of stayed in that neighborhood, and apparently not long ago, some members of his family gave him one of those um, ancestry uh, gift certificates that you could go online and you could find things out about uh, uh, your background, your lineage, your genetic code, all of that, and he did it. And he discovered that he happened to be be in a relationship with a royal family in the African country of Benin. So he did more research, he made some contact with the royal family, and they invited him to come over. And so Jay had saved up his money, and he went over to uh, see this family, this royal family, which he was a part of. Once he got there, they had a wonderful celebration for Jay. Uh, They prepared a great meal for him. They treated him like, well, as a matter of fact, they treated him like royalty, because that's what he was. Now, this is what you need to remember about yourself. You belong to the living God. You are identified with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, whatever command God gives you, whatever it is He wants you to do, you can do it. Because God has given you a new identity. You are identified with Him. So whatever He asks us to do, we can do it because God is going to go ahead of us and He's going to do it for us. Second thing that we need to do in response to this is that we also need to embrace God's timing. And here's why I say that. If you will look at this text in chapter 7, you will notice that uh, in verse 2, Moses writes, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He says this a couple of different times. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then if you were to go down to verse 13, you read the words. It says, still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, why is it important for us to remember that? Whenever God begins to work in a person's life, even when there is judgment against someone like Pharaoh, Uh, Those things happen over time. They do not happen instantaneously. Or or what about this uh, second sign, the plague of the blood or the Nile turning into blood? We are told at the end of chapter 7 in verse 25 that seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. And notice, it wasn't Aaron, it was the Lord who struck the Nile. 
So those things, those things take time. We've already seen that the people of Israel, especially after 400 years, and they hear that God's going to deliver them, they want it to happen right away. But many times, things don't happen as quickly as we might like. And so it's important not only to embrace our new identity in Jesus Christ, but we need to identify or embrace God's time frame. Because God begins to work over a long period of time. He begins to transform us, uh, not just in a day or two, but over a long period of time. You may remember these words from uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Peter wrote to the early Christians, But do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. God is not on our time frame. God does not work in accordance to the agenda that we put together. It's the other way around. We are to come and to embrace His agenda and His time frame. You've probably noticed that in those sports that are what I would call time sports, uh, the players play in accordance with a clock. And yes, you can stop the clock sometimes, but you can't hurry the clock up. You can't make it go faster. You have to follow the time frame that has been established. And the same thing is true with the work of God and the will of God in our lives. God has a time frame. And we don't always know it, but our responsibility is to come and to trust Him, to embrace His time frame. You see, we can do whatever God asks us to do because God will fulfill whatever He wills, whatever He asks of us, whatever He commands of us. There is yet a third thing here that we need to think about, and that has to do with the fact that we need to uh, make sure that we are obeying and we are waiting and watching whatever it is that God asks of us. Notice that we are told again in verse 16 that Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded of them. In fact, you'll want to notice that uh, Moses and Aaron are doing this on a regular basis. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Uh, Every time God spoke to them, They did exactly what God called them to do. Now, this is significant for us because God is speaking to us and God is calling us to obey Him every time He gives us a command. Whether that command is to go into all the world and make disciples. Yes, we might be reluctant. We might think that uh, we are inadequate for pulling off the task, but God gives that command to every single believer. We are to love one another. We are to care for one another. We are to give to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many commands that we find in Scripture, and we are to obey them because they come from God. But the good news is, the great news is, that God will go before us to make sure that those things will come to pass. I was sharing this concept with a very dear friend not long ago, and this friend said to me, so what, what do we do if we simply disobey? What, will God still bring to pass what it is He's going to do? And my response to that was, uh, yes, God's still going to bring it to pass. He might continue to work with us in His grace and His kindness, or 
it's possible that God might also go and He might call someone else and use those people to carry out His task. And we, in the end, will miss out on the blessing. So what is it that God is asking of you today? What has He invited you to do in joining Him in His great work in the world? might be something in your family. might be something in the marketplace where you work. might be something in the church. In spite of the fears and the reluctance and the inadequacy that you might feel, God is already working and you can join Him. Here's one other thing that God is doing. God is always at work inviting people to come into a relationship with Himself. But you see, the Bible teaches us that God is holy and we are not. And so in of, of ourselves, we cannot come to God. That we need to be cleansed, we need to be purified. But even there, God's taken the initiative. And that's why He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, very God of very God, into the world to suffer and die on a cross so that the wrath of God might be poured out upon Him. But Jesus was raised again from the dead so that those who trust in Him, those who receive Him as their Lord and Savior, might have freedom from sin, its power, its penalty, and that they might have the hope and the assurance of life forevermore. Is the Spirit of God speaking to you this morning? Inviting you to come to Jesus if you've never done so, right where you are in the quietness of your own home. You can trust Jesus to be your Savior. And for those of us who have trusted Him, we're going to want to listen to His commands, bring glory to Him, and good to our own lives. Our Father in heaven, thank You for giving us Your Word. Thank You for inviting us to join You. And now... Today, we trust you, we trust you, that all the things you're asking us to do, you are going to bring them to pass. So we give you praise and thanksgiving in Jesus' name, amen.